She's the pushy broad from the Bronx, New York. Follow her voice, a straight dog is nice. She's a pushy broad from the Bronx, oh yeah. Don't be surprised if you want to listen twice. Make decisions, find the right choice. Know yourself better, find your own voice. It's okay if you need help today, cause everybody needs a little push. From the pushy broad from the Bronx, New Welcome, Transformation Talk Radio listeners. My name is Ellen Stewart, and I am the pushy broad from the Bronx. Welcome to my show, Recovery Recharged, normally with my illustrious co-host, Dr. Pat, but uh, sadly, she won't be joining us today. But I do have a very special guest, and we're going to talk about some things that are really important to everybody, which is exactly what we do on this show. Nice, easy, and honest. Today, we're going to talk about something called parenting and the nervous system. So I was really intrigued by this because one of the things that we deal with, especially as adults, is how we manage our emotions and we deal with our stress. So I was really wondering if there was actually a link between our emotional reactions and our nervous system. And what exactly happens when a parent is not able to regulate their own nervous system? Does it affect their behavior? Does it affect the way they deal with their relationships, with their children? And what happens if parents have experienced a significant trauma? Do they bring that into parent-child interactions? And more importantly, what can be done so that parents are aware of this and learn better how to cope and to handle it so they're not passing on this trauma and these emotional reactions to their children. So I decided to bring on an expert. And this expert is Lynn Wadsworth, who is a duly licensed clinician in the state of North Carolina. She's a mental health counselor and an addiction specialist as well. She has over 30 years experience working with adolescents, young adults, and their families. So we're going to talk a lot about parenting and a lot about the kind of cases that Lynn sees on a regular basis. Lynn joined Red Oak Recovery seven years ago and created a specific family program and has since served as clinical director, executive director, and now director of clinical services for all of Red Oak Recovery programs. She is also a licensed substance abuse and mental health counselor. I am really pleased to introduce her to you today. I also want you to know that she has vast experience with therapeutic boarding schools, adolescent intensive outpatient programs, wilderness programs, and a hospital inpatient unit. So, she has a plethora of experience for us today. She has a lot of great things to tell us and a lot of things to teach us. Welcome, Transformation Talk Radio, Lynn Wadsworth. Good morning. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Hi, Ellen. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So you spent, you're spending time at Red Oak right now, and you're working in the family program. Just give us a little bit of an overview of how much you enjoy that. Oh, well, okay. Um, let's see, a brief overview. Um, I'll just say a little bit about how I came to that. I was a troubled teen myself. I raised a very powerful young man who was uh, sort of troubled in some ways. And over those years, I, I started to realize that the family system and the family dynamic 
was such an important part of the story for teens and young adults. And um, I got, I fell in love with how to help families. So when you say you have personal experience, we want to know what was you, what's your definition of you being a troubled teen? Well, I, um, you know, grew up in the early seventies, late sixties, early seventies, and um, kind of got into the whole hippie drug scene. And I grew up in Mississippi. So I was, you know, a bit removed from a lot of context for that and had, you know, sought out people, mostly older, the the folks were older that I found. And we were using a lot of drugs and going to concerts and, you know, um, just a lot of, a lot of hijinks, a lot of things going on. And then I dropped out of high school and, um, and eventually found my way back to college back in the seventies, you could do that. And um, obviously eventually went on to graduate school as well. So yeah, a lot. I went to therapy when I was 15. My parents took me to therapy and they went to family therapy also. And this is in 1971 or 72. And that was a very advanced way. But uh, look, you were a woman after my own heart and my own generation. I was, you know, I went to college in the 70s and, you know, I was out in Ashbury in the riots of of 68 and all of that craziness and and sex, drugs and rock and roll and all of that stuff. And everybody knows that that I am in recovery myself uh, from days like that, where we definitely did a lot of drugs and a lot of hallucinogenics and we just, it was just very, very wild time. And how I didn't end up six feet under, I have no clue. I just have no clue by the grace of God, for sure. So you had a troubled childhood. Do you think that that some of what you did and some of the trauma you felt translated into raising your son? Absolutely. Absolutely. How, how so? Give us an example of that. So when he, well, it turned out that he is someone who is, his profile is what we might call on the autism spectrum, very sort of on the mild end of the autism. And a lot of folks may not know a lot about what that means, but what it brings with it for children is a level of rigidity. So very rigid in their their interest and their desires and their willingness. And then what we call a restricted interest. So when I joke about my son, I say he's interested in sports, period. That's the end of the conversation. <laughs> and, so, and why why is that connection? Explain that to us a little bit, okay? Where where does the rigidity come from? How so? Well, this is this is wiring for folks on the autism spectrum. So it's you know this this is neuro neurological information that causes that. But he was so he was a somewhat difficult child to raise. He was an amazing, talented, wonderful kid. But also that rigidity made it very hard with parenting. And so in my unresolved trauma from my own childhood made it that as when he would be very rigid, we would try to get him just to put on his clothes to go to preschool, you know, and, and that was a task in itself. We had to give him treats to put on appropriate clothing in the wintertime, say. And, and so there was so much, it was stressful parenting because I was a young new parent anyway, and I had my own trauma. So I was easily, my nervous system was easily activated by running into that kind of barrier with him. 
I see. All right. So that brings us back to the principles of this particular show. It's fascinating to me that everything is connected, not only in a mental way, an emotional way, but a physical way as well. And we know through the years, through science and through, really through self-development, self-exploration and all the mental health work that we're doing, that our physicality is tied directly to our emotional responses. So you put together a presentation a while ago and you talked to clinicians about it. So I want you to be able to share this with us laymen a little bit about what the polyvagal theory is, all right? Polyvagal, for those of us out there, P-O-L-Y-V-A-G-A-L theory. So who conceptualized this? And tell us what this is about, an overview. Okay. Um, so uh, Dr. Stephen Porges developed the theory, the polyvagal theory, uh, 20 or so years ago. And I think, you know, I don't want to speak for him. I'm certainly not an expert on him. But what I've read and what I've understood is that he, it was not intended to provide information and, uh, you know, sort of a lens for looking at mental health treatment. That's not where he was going with it. Um, but it became clear over time that it was very useful for mental health providers to understand more about the vagus nerve and more about the vagal states, the nervous system states. A, a woman named Deb Dana, who is a social worker, came along and, and learned, you know, met Dr. Stephen Porges and learned about his theory. And she then began to translate it into an actual um, practical way to approach mental health treatment. So both of them are really instrumental in providing this information for us. All right. So that's the who. All right. Now let's explain a little bit about the how. Okay. So there's one vagus nerve on each side of our body, correct? And that's kind of the large nerve, you know, running on each side of the temple, so to speak. Is that correct? And then it runs from the lower part of the brain through the neck to the chest and the stomach, right? And then when that nerve is stimulated, electrical impulses travel to areas of the brain. Yes. And this alters brain activity. So first of all, what would stimulate the vagus nerve? Give us an outward emotional example. Okay. So everything. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, let me see. I, you know, so many things can stimulate it because there are different states that we talk about in polyvagal theory. And so the three different states are activated by different things. But um, part of the, the sympathetic nervous state which is part of the autonomic nervous system, that is activated by threat. And, and so many things can be threat. Um, when a child's mother frowns at them or has a face that looks angry or even pens, if you're just thinking, but you might have a resting angry face. So um, that can activate a child's nervous system, that into sympathetic. I see. So that's the sympathetic activation. It also really also triggers the fight or flight response, correct? Give us give us a concrete example of what that would be a parent child interaction. Okay, so um, there's a there's a clip from a a scene in um, Friday Night Lights that I like to show. And it's a scene where the daughter who's a teenager is out with her friends. She's you know, has a new boyfriend. She's just trying on this boyfriend and trying to impress him and, you know, getting involved in that. And she's late coming home. She's missed her curfew. And so the scene is that we see mom calling her frantically 
on her cell phone. Where are you? Where are you? When are you coming home? You're supposed to be here. Mom is getting more and more and more activated into her sympathetic state, which is the fight or flight. Mom is going into fight. Mom is getting angry because she's so scared. What's going on with my daughter? We also see a scene where the daughter's there with the friends and the friends are all smoking marijuana and the daughter chooses not to smoke marijuana. So the daughter's all actually out making good choices, healthy choices for herself. But mom is becoming more and more terrified about what's going on. So when the daughter finally arrives home late, the mother is sort of out of control with her anger and her fear and, you know, goes sort of lashes out at the daughter. And eventually there's a scene where she slaps the daughter because she's so she can't even calm her own nervous system long enough to ask the daughter where were you? What were you doing? You know, tell me what's happening. The mom was already so activated. There was no, no opportunity for conversation. And that happens a great deal. Yes. And when I deal with, with young people in my practice in recovery, and I deal with young people, there's always such a rebellion against parents because they don't understand why parents are agitated and they feel kind of a trap situation. When in actuality, it's basically parents just fight or flight response and that sympathetic activation, which would mean they're out of control. Their nervous system is responding in a fear-based way. Yes. Yes. And only because they're so worried about their child. So scared. Yes. It's not an anger response as much as it is a fear response. Is that correct? Absolutely. But what what their nervous system is reacting to is what we call a cue of threat. What's that? The cue of threat is my child's out. They're late. I don't know where they are. Horrible things can happen. And parents go to that the worst case scenario, you know. Um, Right. It's catastrophizing. Oh, my God. The worst thing has happened. Yes. And that's because their nervous system is so activated. What we talk about in polyvagal work is that there's something Deb Dana talks about. Her line is story follows state. Tell us about that. Okay. So the nervous system gets activated into a state. So sympathetic activation state. And then the parent makes a story about what that nervous system activation is about. Can you give us a concrete example other than what we've just gone through? Yeah. So with the story I was just telling, the mom is getting really scared about what's going on with the daughter. And her story becomes, my daughter is acting out and doing things that are terrible and dangerous and not following the rules and, you know, is just being difficult and and might be dead, could be dead out there or something. Lying like my mother used to say, you could be lying in a ditch someplace. Exactly. That's your mother's story. That's right. her, her story following state. She's worried right. about you. Suddenly she thinks she imagines you lying in a ditch somewhere dead. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, 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 um, all right. So then that's the sympathetic activation state. Let's talk of, about the uh, ventral vagus state, which is glimmer. And you give a nice example here uh, about something that makes you feel calm, connected, joyful, wondrous. Talk about that. Yeah, well, this, this of course, is the really lovely, fun state. And um, well, thank goodness we can have a fun state with our nerves, yes. not just make it, you know, crazy mm-hmm. and out of control. All right. Talk about the glimmer state. Yeah. And, and also on that note, we, you know, Deb Dana talks about the ladder, that we go up and down the ladder. 
So we might be in sympathetic activation, but we can pull ourselves up into ventral state also. So we can move up and down the system, the nervous system state. So ventral vagal state is that state where, for me, the moment I see my grandson, I'm I'm in all ventral. It's all love, connection, you know, just this kind of like yummy, obsessed. I, you know, I'm so delighted and excited to see him. Um, and all I have to do actually is pull up a picture of him because he doesn't live near me. I pull up a picture of him and it brings me into ventral vagal state. So anything like that, seeing an old friend that you haven't seen for a while, or maybe you have seen them, but you, you're getting together for lunch with a friend or, um, yeah, yeah. So it goes into that. So basically what would happen is if somebody was in sympathetic activation and they were all crazy and a parent was really, where's my daughter and where's my, where's, where's my son? And they're out late and they're crazy. And then they walk through the door, okay, safe and sound and in one piece. And we've assessed that we can technically move into ventral vagal state because we see there is a, a feeling of safety and security and you're feeling gratitude and grounded in in you know feeling connected and calm and 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 uh and kind of come down from that state is that correct is that how we can shift well i would say technically but i think what happens with parents and children often is that the parent is so activated that they have a, it takes longer to come back down or to go up into ventral state so the minute the child walks through the door they're still very activated what I sometimes, what we sometimes talk about with parents is when you go into that fear state, try to think about the last really sweet time that you have with your child or some of the things that you know your child is doing in the ways that they're succeeding or the things that they're doing well. So you can do it even internally with your mind. Just think about the last thing that you were excited about with your child when they were doing well. Um, also, you can use things like looking at art or uh, going out in nature is a really great way to bring us into ventral state. A lot of folks will talk about, um, you know, we, we do a sort of a group session with our clients in our program, and we have them list all of the things that bring them into ventral vagal state. And nature is often one of those listening to music, distracting yeah. our attention with, with uh, pleasurable things. Yes. Uh, for me, it's going out to have maybe a gourmet meal or, you know, a tasting menu and that kind of, you know, those kinds of things. But, yeah. but it's important to note that our physicality is definitely affected by our emotions and the reverse is true. Our yeah. emotions directly correlate to calming down the physical state. Yes, absolutely. And so the other thing that I didn't mention is the, the piece that we really coach, because we work with our families every week while their young adult children are in our program, and we do a lot of psychoeducation, but then we do a lot of coaching to help them calm the, the sympathetic activation. So never mind the ventral state, we're just looking at how can you calm that sympathetic activation? And one the thing that we say all the time with the young people in our program is what is the best and most reliable way to calm fight or flight sympathetic activation and the the most reliable is breathing because you have it with you all the time and when we go into sympathetic state we actually often hold our breath 
So a lot of what we do is we even practice with parents and with their children exhaling and almost like a sigh, like an odd, like a, you make a sound as you exhale, really let the air out. Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's do that. Like, like two of those, like right now. Okay. So, so walk us through it. What do we inhale through our nose? What do we do? So, yes, what I, I tend to focus on more, and this may be more based on my own experience, but what I say is when I'm activated, I'm kind of holding my breath. I mean, I'm still breathing. I'm not fully holding my breath. So I'm actually just going to focus on exhaling, a long exhale. So I might do something like, and it might be a sigh, like, ah, a big sigh, right. To let it all out, to let the expression out, to let it all out. And you're right. When we get very agitated and aggravated, and I remember when I yell and scream or when my mother used to yell and scream, they would talk a mile a minute and they would get everything out in one shot and their voice would be raised and there would be no breathing whatsoever. No, no, none at all. And, um, you know, I, um, yeah, I my I do it so much. It's become such a practice for me um, because I do have my own early trauma and, you know, obviously any other stressors that happen that friends of mine will have said to me, oh, yeah, you do that all the time, Lynn. You're always, you know, and I, I do it so often I don't even realize I'm doing it. And I have passed that on to some of my young clients and parents. And I'm so delighted when I hear I, they'll come into the office and I say, how are you doing? And then they go, ah, and then, then they start talking about how they're doing. Right. So it's like this unspoken language. I also talk to my clients about taking deep breaths in through the nose and then yes. exhaling through the mouth, like your pierced lips, like you're blowing out a balloon. So all the air is being exhaled from the mouth and we do it slowly and we do it five times and it really does calm things down. Another <laughs> thing that I would think would be extremely helpful in getting close to the, the ventral state would be to deliver deliberately slow everything down. Yeah. I tell clients to walk more slowly, to talk Uh, more slowly, to uh absolutely move in slow motion so that the body has time to calm down. Because many people, you know, there are lots of people out there that poo-poo the breathing. They say, oh yeah, everybody says breathing. You know, everybody says breathing people because it works. I mean, it's a real thing and it actually works, but see how hard it is to deliberately slow your entire body down. If it takes you 20 steps to get to the kitchen, this time take 40 steps. If it takes you, you know, if it takes you 10 minutes to get dressed, take 20 minutes so that you're slowing everything down and start to speak more slowly. You will reassess, you will become much more calm. And I think it's a prelude to the beginning of the ventral state. What do you think about that? I I love, I love all of that. And I, I, I find myself rushing from one thing to another and Um, I remember a few years ago, I made a New Year's resolution that I was going to be very present in the in-between moments. That's great. Say that again. I I made a resolution that I would be very present in the in-between moments. Give me an example of an in-between moment. In-between. I'm leaving home. I'm driving to work. Okay. All I'm thinking about is like what I've just done or I'm going to work. And I don't even know. I, I don't even remember the time between work, home and work you know, barely remember it. 
you know, barely notice anything that I might see on the way, um, even in between, um, you know, say cooking, you know, and you're doing one thing and then you're moving on to do another thing and cooking. And we're just sort of that, what you're saying, that rushing between one thing and another, just going, 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 going. And, and there's all this in between time that's very frenetic, I think, and we're not very present. And we absolutely miss it. And this is where our emotions can get the better of us. A very wise man said to me about 10 years ago, Ellen, you have to learn that wherever your feet are, that's where your brain has to be. I love that. I'm definitely going to steal that. <laughs> it's okay. I stole it. And I've been using it with all my clients. So thank you, Paul Citro, wherever you are. But nevertheless, wherever your feet are, that's where your brain has to be. Meaning right here, right, right now on the East Coast, it's 1027 a.m. and it's July 12th. And I am talking to a wonderful person, Lynn Wadsworth, about the concept of emotions and the nervous system. And we're going to talk a great deal about different kinds of parenting. But before we go to break, I want to talk about the, the last um uh step in this and the last vagal state and that's the dorsal vagal state so just briefly tell us what state that is so the dorsal vagal state is the state of shutdown collapse and it can happen after an extreme sympathetic activation <laughs> if and anyone is who's listening might think about a time where you were really scared or you had a a big emotional reaction to something. And then the aftermath of that is that you want to just curl up in your bed or curl up on your sofa and not talk to anyone, just sort of pull inside and have this very calm, almost like covered in a blanket kind of state. Um, that is That can be a dorsal state. So that's a nurturing state. Can a dorsal state also be one of depression where we're going inwards and we're we're pulling in and we don't want to move and we just want to crawl under the, you know, under the covers and stay there forever? Could we be in that dorsal state? Yes. That is what I think Deb would refer to as a deep dorsal state. So there's there's kind of a dorsal state, which is kind of yummy. I'm curled up in a blanket in front of the fire, don't want to talk with anyone, don't really want to be social. Um, and then there's a deep dorsal state where we truly go into a collapse and we have a hard time coming out of it. And so this dorsal state is so powerful, I guess, that that it takes us out of awareness and into a protective state, right? Almost collapsing inside of ourselves. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And are there ways, I mean, it, one must feel really in danger there and feel kind of trapped. Is that not the case? Absolutely. And, and, you know, when we obviously all know about depression and understand, you know, the, the depth of that, where someone can't even get out of the bed, can't, doesn't have the energy to socialize or the motivation to socialize. Um, yeah. Um, we can talk some more about that. Well, we have talked about the three states of, um, of, uh, the polyvagal theory. And when we come back, we're going to talk about specific examples and really how the nervous system corresponds with how we parent. So stay with us. We'll be right back. From the pushy broad from the Bronx, New York. Hi, everyone. Dr. Pat here, host of the Dr. Pat Show. 
For about 20 years, you've heard me talk about silver and the importance of silver. I've been looking upside down and sideways to find silver that was the highest quality. And I think I've found it. No, actually, I know I found it. I discovered this in my own healing journey, and that's what we used for me. Emia Life has the most advanced silver available today. All things that harm our health is what it takes care of. Now, I thought I'd seen it all because I've been on this journey for 20 years with silver, but I've not quite found anything like Amia Life. The folks and our friends at Amia Life have put together a special discount for your first purchase of 20% off. Amialife.com. A-M-E-O-Life.com. Remember to give them a call. Tell them Dr. Pat sent you at 1-800-422-8148. I've already sent it to my naturopath. Do you have long-term depression or anxiety? With the right tools, you can fully recover from the long-term effects of childhood trauma. Kimberly Beekman at Inner Alignment offers level one inner healing, coach certification, and soul retrieval healer certification. With this revolutionary neuroscience approach, you can experience profound shifts in only two months. To learn more about these offers and programs, visit KimberlyBeekman.com. Are you ready to put down that drink or drug for good? Are you struggling to maintain your recovery from addictive behaviors? Do you need help with a family member or loved one who's in early recovery or battling addiction? Get the help and guidance you need by arranging a recovery recharged phone session with me, Ellen Stewart, Pushy Broad from the Bronx, Certified Life and Recovery Coach. Call 1-800-889-1757. Make an appointment today. Or go to my website, pushybroadfromthebronx.com, and click on the link that says Recovery Recharged. Don't wait. Get the help you need today. This is Ellen Stewart, Pushy Broad from the Bronx, on TransformationTalkRadio.com. From the Pushy Broad from the Bronx, New York. Welcome back, Transformation Talk Radio listeners. I'm Ellen Stewart. This is the Pushy Broad from the Bronx. Please note that you can reach me anytime at 800-889-1757 when we're off the air. You can book a free session with me online at pushybroadfromthebronx.com. If you want any information about the, the program today, please let me know. We'll be happy to get it to you. And Lynn is going to talk about all um, where she comes from and the work that she does at Red Oak Recovery. And we're going to do that also in the middle of this program. So if you need a treatment center, Red Oak is certainly one that I want you to take a serious look at. In the meantime, today we are talking about something very interesting, and that is parenting and the nervous system. So we have talked about the polyvagal theory and something exceptionally interesting is something called neuroception, correct? And tell us a little bit about neuroception, Lynn, and why it's so important to this discussion. So it's a term that Dr. Stephen Porges coined. So he created this term and it's based on, we know the word perception, which is we perceive something. And neuroception is our nervous system basically perceiving something. So it doesn't have to go through the the thinking part of our brain, so to speak. 
that the nervous system is always scanning, that what they say is it's always scanning for safety. We're scanning for cues. So an example might be, um, you know, you're in the grocery store and you start hearing, you hear a baby cry. Um, many parents are going to have this automatic kind of um, activation, even though it's not their baby. Um, but a baby crying is a is a cue of the child needs something, right? It's a cue of danger, a cue of threat. And, and the nervous, our nervous system, before our brain has a chance to think, oh, that's not my baby, our nervous system is going to have a reaction. And that's, that's what we call neuroception, right? Neuroception. How our brain neuro, yeah, it, how our brain perceives things, I, yes. I would assume. Because yes. when I'm thinking a baby's crying on an airplane, all I'm thinking is, oh, please, God, stop that baby. <laughs> please, <that>. God. <laughs> please, that's don't go crying. <laughs> that, that is definitely the next thought. The thought of that's my very my first thought. Stop <laughs> the baby from crying. And that is that is your nervous system going into activation. And what what's happening is you your th your thinking is please don't let that continue because your nervous system is activated and you're clear. I do not want to be in that kind of state for the next yes. two hours on this plane. Exactly right. Find the pacifier fast. Yes. <laughs> 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 okay, so give us some examples about how children can be, you know, uh, can be triggered as well. What what triggers a child into neuroception? So uh, anyone who's listening who has children or was a child, which I assume is everyone listening, um, can relate to um, this. One of the things, this a little story in my own family, I grew up with three brothers and a father who was, you know, a lovely, wonderful person, but he was definitely sort of the dominant character in the in the family. And um, his name is Blake. We referred to him as Blake as kids. The kids would refer to him as Blake also. Everyone called him Blake. Um, it was sort of like everyone knew him in town. So he was just Blake. And um, when, when we would do something, I had a specific example when I was in college, I was going to drop out of some of my classes or I was thinking about dropping out for the semester or something. And I'm telling one of my brothers and my brother says, you better watch out. Blake is going to lay the frown on you. And so my dad frowning was a cue to us that we were in trouble or that we had disappointed him, but that what was going to come after that was really not going to feel good. So it was a, it was our neuroception was the minute we saw a frown on his face our system became activated and we believed something's, something's going to happen. I'm in trouble. My dad might be frowning because he, you know, just came home from work and he was tired. But for us, we were always scanning for that. And if he was frowning, we thought we were going to be in trouble, which we, of course, were often in trouble because we were wild. Like the little I understand. So we look for triggers. We look for clues. We look for yes. physical clues in the neuroception. So and, why and babies, is this? Babies are constantly responding to their parents' visual. So the face is one of the facial cues is one of the, the primary ways that we communicate what's going on. And we're reading facial cues. Our neuroception is reading facial cues. So why is this so important to parenting? I mean, parents can use their 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 own their own selves to regulate children's emotional, you know, nervous system behavior. But talk about how this relates to how we can better parent our children. Yeah. So so a lot some of the ways that we communicate 
um, what's going on is is a lot. Seventy percent of our communication is nonverbal. So so parents often I find are very attached to the words they're using with their children and not paying close attention to the tone of voice or the look on their face. And so a parent might say, the kid, the child says, such and such happened. And the parent says, well, why did you do that? But they don't say, oh, now why, now why did you do that? They might say, well, why did you do that? And the minute the parent does that, the child's nervous system activates. So a teenager then reads that as a cue of threat. I'm in trouble. My mom, my dad is angry at me. And then their nervous system gets activated and they react to the parent. So this, that's when our children say, leave me alone, or you're, you know, why are you asking, or I don't want to talk about that, or go away, or even worse, you know, start cursing at us or something like that. And then the parent's system gets more activated because the child is reactive. So you have this kind of ping pong match going on where the parent is approaching the child in a heightened state because, and is demonstrating it through tone of voice. The child then becomes activated and then the child's response causes the parent to get more activated. And we start, I call it, now we're off to the races. There, we're off to the races. Here we go. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And we joke with parents, you know, I sort of illustrated on a whiteboard sometimes. And I say, this place up here where everyone is super activated is actually not a problem solving moment. This is not when we're going to solve the problem. Exactly. And and that's so poignant because when that happens and when I do parenting told- uh, uh, conferences and I have a conversation with parents about their kids and then they're in the same uh, situation and everybody's together and I'm working on it together, I will stop them in the middle of this because I let them know that as far as I'm concerned, there is a conversation behind the conversation here. Yes. All of a sudden, we're not talking about what we did or what someone has done or what the kid has talked about. All of a sudden, we're talking about I'm accusing you and now I feel attacked. So now I'm being defensive. It Then yeah. the whole situation and the whole experience is go, goes out the window because we're not talking about that anymore. What right. we're talking about is how we can't communicate because I'm accusing you and you're feeling attacked. Yeah. So what I sometimes tell parents and, 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 and let me know if, if this is, if this is a great approach, but what I sometimes talk about to parents is to be more honest with their child, to turn around and say to them, look, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say it that way. There was something going on at work that made me a little agitated. I understand. I am just casually asking to you for you to relate the experience. I'm not placing any judgment on this situation. That's perfect. Perfect. Right? But parents have trouble yes. being so honest with their kids. Why do you think that's the case? I think that, you know, I, I think that's a big conversation probably, but I think it has to do with vulnerability. And we're a okay. little bit afraid to be vulnerable with our children because we are afraid it's not good parenting maybe. But I think the other piece that we teach parents to do is emotional communication, which is to say, what just happened really scares me. Instead of acting out my fear with my child, like, oh my God, what'd you do? Well, you know, Allah, you know, um, instead of that, I might say to him, if I can breathe, feel my feet on the ground, get really present and calm my own nervous system, then I might say in a perfect world, I would say, you know, what you just did really scares me. And here's why it scares me, because 
you know, you've kind of gone down that road before and it hasn't worked out. And, you know, you're so important to me. And I, I just, when I see signs that you're doing things that I think might be risky or dangerous, I get really scared. You're absolutely right. And every single adolescent and young adult that I have spoken to that has established that kind of relationship with their parents, where their parents are more vulnerable, where their parents are talking to them, not as a parent child, but human being to human being with honest feelings, kids feel so much more respected. Not yeah. only that, but when I was growing up, I always put my parents on such a high pedestal. They were almost godlike in the respect that I tried to show them, which means it was never, I never felt I could be good enough. I always searched for that approval that was never enough for me. But when parents come to a human level and, and, and kids feel, you know, more at ease, that they don't have to live up to expectations or aspirations that are way out of line, right? Or that are completely unattainable, unattainable don't you think? Exactly. Yeah, like you said, uh, your parent becomes more human. So they're they're not on this huge pedestal. They're, this is just your mother who loves you, who's scared about what's going on for you because these behaviors could lead to problems. And yeah, well, and, the moment, know, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think there are, I've worked with some young people who then feel, might feel guilty or feel like, you know, what we don't want is our kids to have to take care of our feelings. We want to make that really clear, you know, that, you know, what we, I find myself saying a lot of times to young people is, don't worry about it. Your, your mom, your dad, they're actually really good at taking care of their feelings. You don't need to do that for them. But I do want mom and dad to say, the reason I'm reacting to this is because I'm scared. But the child's not the child's responsibility to take care of parents' fear. That's exactly right. And there are two very important things to put to, you know, to put out there. And I find that when parents do get that kind of vulnerable, kids are surprised because they're not thinking that their parent is is scared about them. They're just thinking that their parent wants to punish them for doing something wrong. And it's not about right or wrong. It's about parents wanting to protect their child, for sure. Absolutely. So, yeah. What happens when a parent is not able to regulate their nervous system and, and when parents have had significant trauma on their own? And give us examples of some of those trauma and, and then what happens. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, a lot of us, unfortunately, it's a large percentage of people in the world who have experienced trauma. And of course, we all went through the pandemic, which was activating and stressful for a lot of people. But, you know, there might be early childhood physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. There can be people who were caught in hurricanes or the house burnt down or significant car wrecks. All kinds of things have created trauma for us. And so what can ultimately happen, and we see this in a certain number of our parents also, is that their nervous systems stay in almost a, a constant state of activation. So there's, there's like this low level sympathetic activation all the time. So it only takes a small thing to further activate them and, and get that parent really thrown off, very upset, maybe becoming you know more aggressive or lashing out at their child. And, and so the, the piece that happens in some cases, this is not all the, all the time, but some of the situations that we see is the parent is actually in some ways looking to the child 
to help regulate their own nervous system. Um, so, you know, one of the examples I give parents is those situations. And, and if, as always, this is not 100% of the time. It's many things. But sometimes when we're in the grocery store with our four-year-old and the four-year-old wants candy or whatever, and we say, no, we're not buying any more candy. And then the four-year-old throws himself on the ground or starts screaming or something like that. Um, when the child gets very upset and starts to throw a temper tantrum, the parent's nervous system gets very activated. So we go into fight or flight when our kids are in the middle of this place throwing a fit and we don't know how to calm them down. And, you know, we're, you know, it's sort of embarrassing and we know we're distracting other people and it's, it's, it's a fraught situation. And so the parent becomes very activated. And what I say is that we do everything we can to calm our child we tell ourselves sometimes that we want to calm our child because we want our child to feel okay. But the truth is a lot of what we're doing is calming our child so that we can calm ourselves. So basically the message sometimes is I need for you to behave and do things that don't scare me because when you do things that scare me, I am not very good at managing my own nervous system. Okay. All One right. One of the joke I used to say to parents is that our message as parents is, I need for you to make this job easier for me. <laughs> <laughs> I completely understand that. And and you know, look, some of the other trauma that happens with with parents is is not only the the things on the outside world, but but like you said, some of the mental trauma. And part of that is is what this show is about. When when a parent is an active addict or an alcoholic and is trying to struggle with raising their child and the child doesn't understand what's happening, even, you know, even if they're young adults, all right, they don't know how to understand or cope. So let's, let's move into some practical solutions. How do people become better parents? What kinds of questions should they be asking themselves? Well, I think, um, you know, ask yourself or scan your own system, look at your own system um, and ask yourself, am I someone who lives in a constant state of stress or um, sort of irritation or do I have a great deal of that kind of irritation stress? Um, and if so, pay attention. One of the first thing I think is to pay attention when you speak to folks when you're stressed does it come across harshly? Um, does it come across too too hard on folks? And then how can you back that up a little bit? Um, so pay attention. One of the things I did, I, actually, when my son was young, he used to constantly say to me, why are you mad at me? And I would say, I'm not mad at you. Um, but he, he was seeing my face. It's sort of like this resting, angry face. And I actually would look in the mirror at myself and say, like, I need to remember to smile. And so I, it's like, it's almost a, a mantra in my own head of like, remember to smile and remember to soften. And, you know, it's a little bit what you were saying too, Ellen, about make sure your mind is where your feet are. So be in the moment, be present. I always tell parents, feel your feet on the ground, especially when you're getting upset about something, just really ground yourself. Breathing is absolutely the best way to manage yourself. Obviously, I think going to therapy or going to your, you know, minister or rabbi or, you know, if there's someone else in your world who is a, a coach or a mentor, um, 
you know, talk to those folks and ask for some honest feedback about what people experience in you if you can't, if you're not sure you can see it yourself. Uh, do and lots of things that bring you into ventral vagal state. Remember, <laughs> parents get so busy. We're so busy parenting. We're so busy that we forget to do things that bring us joy just all by ourselves. And I think, you know, when I work with families, I often see two parents who have really neglected themselves in that way. And also, I think it's important to do some introspection. Yes. Decide and and take a really good look at what was your relationship with your parents, right? And how do you wish things were different? It's very easy to say, I'll never be like this or I'll never be like that. How much are you like your parents? Are you taking the positive stuff that has happened in your growing up and transferring it? Are you letting go of some of the negative stuff? How vulnerable are you? What experiences can you take with you? Right. Yeah. Don't you think that's important? Absolutely. And in our family work, that's one of the first things we do. Our family therapists um, get to know the, the parents initially in the first couple of sessions they have with them. And then they ask them to tell the story of their childhood, their relationship with their parents. And what we're trying to do is help parents begin to remember some of the things that created difficulties for them and their parenting. Also, the really good things to remember the, the really wonderful things. Uh, but the the thinking is that this intergenerational idea where we we bring to our parenting information, emotional information from our own family of origin and the way that we were parented. So if I didn't get enough recognition or validation from my dad, then I might be bringing that to my parenting and looking for, you know, validation through my parenting. So I want my kids to perform in a sense. I want them to look a certain way and behave a certain way so that I can feel validated as a parent because I'm looking for validation that I'm a capable person because I didn't get enough of it in my own childhood. You know, that's just one simple example. Of how we overcompensate, right? Yeah. And, and how we make it where... Um, we are trying desperately to undo things or to make up for things that were lacking in our past. And, you know, you talked about before putting stuff on the whiteboard. I always talk about that with, uh, and you literally do it, but I always talk about that with my clients. I kind of like to look at the CSI thing, you know, like let's, let's uh -huh. take a look at all the players. Let's take a look at all the past. Let's see what's going on in my life and look at it objectively. I always say to clients, let's take ourselves out of the play and put ourselves in the audience. What would that person, what would we be like? What is it looking like here? And how can we objectively see where our emotions lied and the reasons for doing what we were doing? Now, I know that you spend a lot of time doing this at a place called Red Oak Recovery, and I know you're very, very proud of this, and I am thrilled to be able to talk about Red Oak, and I am going to go see it in October, and I can't wait to do that. So, number one, tell us a little bit about Red Oak, and then tell us about your program. Okay. So, Red Oak was started about nine years ago um, by someone named Jack Klein, who um, had been in the wilderness therapy world, and a lot of us had been in the wilderness therapy world, and realized that he wanted to do something a little bit more, sort of a hybrid model, where our clients get outdoors a lot. They do a lot of time out in the wilderness or out in outdoor activities. Um, but Monday through Friday, or at least Friday morning, midday, they're in what looks like a residential treatment program. So they're doing 
six hours of group therapy a day. They're doing a lot of individual therapy. Um, and then a lot of 12-step work, going to meetings, having meetings themselves. Um, but then as of Friday afternoon, they're going rock climbing and canoeing and hiking and camping and um, going you know, out to animal places to see animals, going to the art museum. So all kinds of different activities that they do Friday through Sunday evening, basically. All so, right. So just to break it down a little bit, we are talking about Red Oak Recovery, which comprises three distinct treatment centers. We, I want you to break that down for a moment. And it basically is residential program for adolescents and adults dealing with substance misuse and co-occurring disorders, correct? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. So tell yeah. us about the three programs. So we have two young adult programs. One is a primarily like male identified program, and the other is a, a female identified program. And both of those programs have a capacity of about 20 clients. So they're small programs. They're completely different locations. They are both on campuses that are about 40 acres. Where are they? What state are and, we talking about? And we're in Western North Carolina. And folks in North Carolina know what Western North Carolina means, but the rest of the world might not. But Western North Carolina is in the mountains. So we're in the mountainous region of North Carolina. And um, then we have a third program, which is for adolescent males only. We don't have females. What and are the ages? What exactly ad is adolescent? So the adolescent program is 14 through 17. If they turn 18 in the state of North Carolina, they have to go to an adult program. And our young adult programs are 18 to about 32, 33. Um, we have had clients who are 36 and 37 who feel very comfortable being in a setting where most people are in their mid-20s or you know, early 20s. Um, but yes. All right. So we're going to spend just a, a little bit more time. We have about two minutes till the end of the show. So it's Red Oak Recovery in North Carolina, and you can find all about it by going to redoakrecovery.com. Yes. Yes. All right. And you can find out about Lynn's program, which is a family program. And she also does a lot of clinical work and will answer any, any questions you need by going to redoakrecovery.com. Uh, red so in the last minute we're here, Lynn, what do you want to leave us with? What's important about parenting and the nervous system? Oh my gosh. I think, um, I think if we can all understand more about our nervous systems and how our nervous systems are informing our behaviors, um, and then we also can know that we actually have the capacity to manage our nervous systems much more than we think we do. And if we can just do that, it can help us to communicate in all of our situations and families, in, in the entire family system, it can help us communicate better it can help us help our children manage their own nervous systems by not activating them regularly with our own nervous systems. Um, so I, th I think that's the main thing I want parents to know and that, and that there's a lot of information on this. And, you know, you can look um, Google uh, polyvagal theory and find a plethora of information. Dr. Borges has written several books. Deb Dana has written several books, many of them for lay folks. 
So there's a lot available. There you have it, Lynn Wadsworth. Thank you so much for being here today uh, and telling us about this very, very important topic. This is Ellen Stewart, the pushy broad from the Bronx, saying thanks for listening. And remember, everybody needs a little push. See you next time. From the pushy broad from the Bronx, New York.